amazing text. So uh, let me read to you Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon was the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asa, and Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, and Joram was the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of Amon, and Amon was the father of Josiah, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon." And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Akim, and Akim was the father of Eliud, and Eliud was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of Methan, and Methan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you on on this day for this text. Lord, as today is Mother's Day and we want to honor and celebrate mothers and the gift that mothers are, not only to, uh, to our families, but to this church, Lord, we want, to, um, we want to recognize not only the mothers that are in this list of names by which you brought about our Savior, but we want to recognize the mothers who are here. Lord, we thank you that for the gifts they are to their family. Lord, we thank you for the gifts they are to the church. We thank you for the ways that they reflect your character and who you are. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for showing us your self-sacrificing nature in mothers who so often give of themselves and their time and their energy and their efforts to bless us and to care for us and to invest in us. Father, we would pray this morning that they might today experience your rest, your rest in Christ, knowing that he has been our our sufficiency entirely and that uh, you have have and are making all mothers sufficient in Christ, particularly when we obey you and follow your commandments and live in accordance with your plan. And so, Father, I pray that today might be a day where they can experience that rest, where they don't have to strive to perform for their families or work for their families or maybe gain the approval of their families or of you, but they can rest in all that Christ has done for them and 
not only be served maybe by you today and by your word, but by their families. Lord, we thank you again for the gift of mothers. We thank you for this text that shows us uh, just how great your grace is. Lord, would, we, would you help us to be amazed and in awe of all that you've done throughout these generations in bringing us Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would bear our sins to the cross and die in our place and rise again victoriously to offer us life. Lord, we want to pray not only for ourselves this morning, but we want to continue to pray for Bob and Teresa Reister as we, as we think of them and pray for them right now. Lord, we pray that you would just help their words and ours to be seasoned with grace. Lord, we pray that you would help them to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within. And, and, and Lord, we pray the same for us as well, that we would be willing to speak of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, as they've asked us to pray that they would be sensitive to the gospel and to opportunities and to be willing to take conversations to spiritual places and, and to tell people of Jesus. Lord, we want to pray that for them. We pray that you would give them great uh, uh, willingness to do that, even in the midst maybe of fear at times or insecurity at times. But Lord, we want to pray the same for us. Would you help them in their context and us here to be quick to speak of the gospel, quick to speak of Christ, quick to share of all that he's done for us and to tell people of his greatness and his glory and his kindness to us. Father, as we look to your word now, would you, would you just build your church and build our families by your grace and power through your spirit. And we ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Families can be tough. I mean, maybe some of you have fam hard stories of things that have gone on in your families. Uh, there are, uh, I could share stories with you in my family's history that are headline worthy. I could share stories with you from my family that have actually made headlines. And none of it is good stuff. That's not to say there's no good things in my family, but there are hard things in families. Same would be true as we look at this text in the book of Matthew of Jesus' family. I think today, maybe we're seeing a period, at least in our context and our culture, where the family is incredibly under attack. If you have not heard of it, it's been talked about a lot, but has been brought even to my attention more recently. Uh, the March 2020 article of Atlantic Magazine ran a headline article by David Brooks called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. In this article, Brooks argues, and I'm going to use his language here, that all of American society for a time in our history conspired to make the family successful. But that generally, families are fragile. Now, I would agree with him that families are fragile. You put that many sinners in a close environment and there will be problems. But I do not agree with his premise that the nuclear family was a mistake. The family is under attack. The questions are being asked in our society. Can we do something better than family? If you're not paying attention, you may not know that amongst higher education circles, the question is being asked, how can we insert disadvantages into the education system for children who grow up 
in a home with a mother and a father. Because our world is seeing that they have an advantage and are trying to create not just... See, America was built on the premise that everybody had equal opportunity and now we're demanding equal outcomes. And so if children who are in a home with a mom and a dad excel, we need to somehow create disadvantages for them so that they can be on the same playing field as those who grow up in single-family homes. But the reality is that by God's design, the most basic unit amongst people is the family. When we look at Genesis 1 and 2, before Genesis 3, before sin, before anything went wrong in the world, God creates everything, and he makes a man, and he puts him in the garden, and he tells him, tend the garden, and name the animals, and Adam is starting to catch on. He sees that there are uh, pairs of everything except him, and he feels lonely. This should be remarkable to us because remember, this is before the fall. This is before sin. Before sin has has entered into the picture, God leaves Adam lonely. And in his loneliness, he creates Eve. And, And by doing so, he makes the first family. And everything flows out of that. All other families flow out of that. All other nations flow out of that. All societies flow out of that. The most basic building block of any society is the family. And your first priority ought to be your family. The second priority ought to be the church. And the third priority, the world that we live in. The community in which God has placed us. If that's out of order... Fix it. Family, church, community. But what all this means is that as go families, so goes the church. And as go families, so goes society. You cannot destroy the family and think that you will have a healthy society afterwards. We're trying our best as a society to do that, I believe that the attack on the family is an attack of Satan. Because if he can dismantle the family, he can dismantle society. And if he can dismantle the family, he can attempt to dismantle the church. He's self-deceived enough to believe that he might be able to dismantle the church. But he stands no chance. But the goodness of the family is by God's design. And, And these attacks... Are coming. How is, he, how is he trying to destroy the family? Well, I mean, we're to the point now in our society where you can run even two years ago, and if you don't think two years is long, you're not paying attention to the culture. The culture is changing fast. In our world today, two years is forever. The fact that two years ago an article could be published saying the nuclear family is a ba- or was a mistake is, is really telling. But it started by simple redefinition. Redefining what it means to love, redefining what it means to be a a father and a mother or a couple, redefining what marriage is and who marriage is between outside of God's design, redefining what the family looks like. And then as we watch, we see just towering numbers of mental illness, particularly among youth 
There are higher levels of depression and sadness among youth than ever before. And if we think that dismantling the family is going to help that, we are severely mistaken. As long as families continue to erode and degrade, we're going to continue to see sadness and depression rise. I don't wonder why there's, there's these record numbers of depression and sadness today. The family erodes further and further, and we're watching people become more and more unhappy. If I could get on a soapbox for a minute, not a soapbox, but maybe a pedestal, um, I would say that, that uh, we have a real connection here as we talk about families and Jesus' family and the history of Jesus' family into what's coming next as next steps for our church. I've talked much about how as elders we've been working on this visioning process, asking the question who Trinity is, and we've been defining some of that. We've, we've unrolled our, uh, our new mission statement, which is just to be uh, a little more usable, that we are taking steps together to love God and to make Him known, and what our values for ministry are. But really the big question before us is, as a church, how are we going to make a difference in the world we live in? See, the first, the, the mission of the church is not to gather, to hide inside walls, to self-protect and insulate from the world. The mission of the church is to call people to reconciliation with God and with each other. You want to know how to see families reconciled? Introduce them to Jesus. And so I think we have an opportunity before us as a church in the world we live in today, which I think God has given us a lot of leeway to say, what's going on in the world and how can we make a wise investment in it to be a church that makes a difference in families. If the church isn't going to help families, who is? I'm afraid today there, there are few and far between who will. And so we want to be a church that's for families, that's investing in families. We want to be a church that's healthy here so that as families are reached with the gospel, when they come here, they find a healthy family to participate in. This was certainly my story. I mean, as Jennifer and I were driving here today, she asked the question, how, what, what can we do for some of these kids who come on Mother's Day or Father's Day and, and don't have a mother or a father? I said, well, that was me, and it wasn't really that hard for me because I had the church. Family, church, then community. My father died when I was seven years old. I remember, I think it was, I said in first service it was first grade. I actually think it was second grade. I remember in second grade making a Father's Day gift for fathers. Now, of course, this was pre-Father's Day, but if you're going to make a Mother's Day gift, you got to make a Father's Day gift, right? So we were making Father's Day gifts. We all got a cigar box. We all got macaroni. We glued macaroni to the cigar box, and then we spray-painted them silver. I didn't have to wonder who I was going to give my Father's Day macaroni cigar box to, because there was a man in my church who who had stepped into my life and who loved me, who did not replace my father, but he loved my father when my father was alive. He loved me. I call him dad to this day. I have a relationship with him to this day. And I was so pleased, not sad, on Father's Day to give him my macaroni box. But you know what? I grew up. 
I moved off to college, spent seven years in Oregon, moved to Arizona, they moved to Arizona. Some 30 years probably later, from the time I gave him that, uh, that macaroni box, I was at his house one day and he asked me to go get something out of his closet. I went up to the closet to get something and you know what was in the closet? A smashed up macaroni box. But there it was. And as a 30-something year old man, that was meaningful to me. And it was meaningful to him. I mean, God has given incredible ability for the church to influence broken families. You might be sitting there thinking, well, how do, how do I have time to do that? Let me ask you a question. Do you have one hour a month? One hour a month to invest in a family that doesn't know Jesus. Open your home, share a meal, take him out for coffee, go to the park, I don't know. One hour. Get a load of this. If 75% of Trinity's families invested one hour a month in a family that doesn't know Jesus, at the end of five years, we will have invested 32,000 hours in the families. We want to reach 100 families a year with the gospel over the next five years. Because as go families, so goes the church. And as go families, so goes society. Part of that is we want, we want this to be the best place it can be when they come here. And so one of the things we want to do is we want to, we want to strategically align things to free up some of our time. Like if you're at the church five nights a week, knock it off. I'm not joking. Knock it off. Stop coming to something at the church and go spend time with a family that needs Jesus. But we want to be the healthiest place here too. I think one of our best next steps in that process is, is to, uh, to hire a full-time worship leader. If you don't know why that position needs to be full-time, uh, come see me. I'd love to have that conversation with you. I would enjoy having that conversation with you. But part of all of this is, is, is budgetary. We really need, in order to take some of these risks that we want to take in terms of budget, in terms of hiring, in terms of reaching out, we really need to end this year uh, at 100% of... of projected giving. We're at like 92%. And if we can hit 100, then we can, uh, we can, we can know that God is leading us to, uh, to, to propose a risky budget for next year. And if we can't, that's okay. No criticism, but we have to know what we're, we're dealing with. But in terms of reaching out, which is the mission of the church, and, and, and being, you know, and, and what we want to do here in terms of just growth and hiring and, and taking our next steps, the church can only move at the speed of your generosity, both in terms of time and in terms of finances. And so I would consider, I would ask you to consider helping us get to 100% this year so that we can, our, our budget that we want to propose for next year is the exact same dollar amount as this year, but it has zero room to fall short, which is why we need to know we can hit 100% this year.
Because if we can hit 100% this year, we can hit 100% next year. I'll get off the soapbox now, but all of this is kind of tied together to families. Let's get back to families and look at the genealogy of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 1, which is just an incredible passage, and I'm not being facetious here. One pastor said that as he studied this, this, uh, this passage, it was so gr- dripping with grace that it got all over his desk. There is an incredible amount of grace and goodness to be seen in this genealogy. To know why it's important, let's just review really quickly where we were two weeks ago in Matthew, and that is that we saw that Matthew presents to us Jesus as the king. He is the righteous king, the sinless king, the reigning king, the rejected king, and the returning king. But he is king nonetheless. And Matthew, being a good Jew raised in this culture, wants to show us that Jesus has that right. There was a time not too long ago in America's history where there was question whether it was right or not, I don't know, about the pedigree, if you will, of an American presidential candidate. Was he actually a U.S. citizen? Because you can't be president if you were not born a U.S. citizen. You can't become a citizen and then be president. You have to be born a citizen according to the Constitution. And so if somebody wants to be president, their lineage matters. If somebody were to stand up in London today and say, I am the rightful king or queen of England, what would we say? Prove it. You would have to demonstrate that. And to a Jew, being able to demonstrate this is really important. If you've read the first five books of the Bible, you know how long these lists can be. We know from historians at this time that the Jews kept fastidious records. If you wanted to be a priest, you had to prove you were from the tribe of Levi. If you wanted to be the king, you had to prove not only that you were from the tribe of Judah, but from the line of David. And all of that goes back to being a member of the nation of Israel, the people of Abraham. And that's exactly what we're presented with in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, there's his right to the throne, the son of Abraham, there's his national right. He is a Jew by birth and a descendant of David, a son of Abraham. Therefore, he is rightly not only in this nation, but able to be its king. And this reigning, ruling, rejected, returning, righteous king deserves the throne. See, God had promised to David that one of his descendants, the Messiah, would be an eternal king. And so this king has to be from the line of David. But as we unpack this genealogy, I want us to look at five incredible truths that Jesus' genealogy reveals to us. Number one, Jesus' genealogy shows us the faithfulness of God. How in the world, Logan, are you getting the faithfulness of God from this? Let me explain it to you. Because it's not evident on the surface But I want us to consider both Matthew's genealogy and Luke's. Matthew's genealogy is a descending genealogy. It starts with the past and works to the present as Jesus is born. It is a descending genealogy through the line of Joseph. 
And this shows us Jesus' legal right to the throne. It is the legal line that we see coming through Joseph because it is not the mother's pedigree, if you'll forgive the term, that allows someone a right to the throne. It is the father's. The right to the throne, the right to the royal line, came not through a mother and her genealogy, but through a father. And so Matthew, wanting to show us that Jesus is the king, gives us this descending genealogy through Joseph, verse 16, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. We'll get back to that in a minute. But this shows us Jesus' legal right to be the king of God's people. Luke's genealogy, however, is an ascending genealogy. It starts with Jesus and works back through history, and it is an ascending genealogy through the bloodline of Mary. And so through Joseph in Matthew, we see the legal line of Jesus that connects him to David. And through Luke and Mary, we see the bloodline that connects Jesus to David. Either way, as God is working through history, bringing this man and this woman together, and then ultimately Jesus to be born of a virgin, God is being faithful to bring about his promises we're going to see much more ways in which he is, is faithful here. But by the way, this, this genealogy in Matthew is not claiming that Joseph is the biological father of Jesus. Matthew, it's hard to see in English, is giving nod to the virgin birth. Verse 16, even in the genealogy he does this. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom? Who does whom refer to here? By whom Jesus was born? Is this Joseph or is it Mary? Well, in English we don't know because our relative pronouns don't have gender. But fortunately, in Greek, the language this was written in, there is gender. And if it's referring to a man, it's masculine. If it's referring to a woman, it's feminine. And if it's referring to both, it's masculine. This whom, this by whom relative pronoun here is feminine. It has zero reference to Joseph. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the, Mary, uh, the husband of Mary, and it is by Mary that Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so even though Matthew is tracing for us Jesus' royal lineage through Joseph, he's not connecting Joseph any way to Jesus as his biological father. Scripture never presents Joseph as the earthly father of Jesus in a biological sense. God made a promise that the Messiah would come through the line of David because David's line is the kingly line and therefore the king must come through that line. And whether you track Joseph's line in Matthew, which by the way comes through Solomon, or Mary's line in Luke, which comes through David's son Nathan, either way you trace Jesus' lineage, he gets back to David. Either way, you see the faithfulness of God to keep his promises made hundreds of years beforehand. Either way, you see the faithfulness of God to do what God says he will do. Secondly, and really quickly, Jesus' genealogy shows us that Jesus must be the Messiah. There are Jews today who are waiting for the Messiah. But guess what? Nobody today can prove it. 
After Jesus was born and, and died in 70 AD, Rome destroyed Jerusalem, burned all its records. By 72 AD, the nation had been entirely captured by Rome and was no longer a nation in any way and was not restored as a nation for almost 2,000 years until in the 40s it became a nation again. And Jews from all over the world, but particularly from Europe, flocked to Israel. And upon getting there, they have no record of their birth. They can't prove they're from the, line, from the tribe of Judah, let alone the line of David. They can't prove they're from the Levitical line and therefore qualified to be a priest. The last verifiable person who has the right to the throne of David is Jesus Christ. No one else can prove themselves to be the Messiah. He's it. And if anybody should come along and say, I am the Messiah, you should say, prove it. Because they can't. I don't think this is accidental. I think God wants to stop all record keeping so that we can know that Jesus' genealogy shows us that he must be the Messiah. Thirdly, Jesus' genealogy shows us the realness of adoption. Jesus' genealogy shows us the realness of adoption because the right to the throne came not from a mother, but from a father. And if adoption is not real, if adoption does not qualify you as a full-fledged son or daughter in a family, and I don't mean just in an earthly sense, I mean in a heavenly sense, then Jesus has no right to the throne. It is because Jesus was adopted in that culture and in that day that he has the right to the throne. And the culture and the scripture recognize this. Luke 3.23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. Luke records Mary's genealogy but tells us that Jesus was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And then, in Luke 4.22, he shows a society's position on Jesus. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? They probably did not, like you and I, believe in the virgin birth. Probably believed that Jesus was born from some sort of scandalous means. But either way, they understood him to be the son of Joseph. The only way that Jesus has a right to the throne is if he is actually the son of Joseph. Because the father granted the royal line and Mary only granted royal blood. Adoption is as real in God's reckoning as biological birth. This should be great news to all of us. If you're sitting there thinking, oh, I'm not adopted, that's okay. Yes, you are. If you've trusted in Jesus. Because all of us have been adopted as sons and daughters of God into his family through Jesus Christ. And we should never think that because we were adopted into God's family that we are somehow second-rate kingdom citizens. Because adoption is real. And Jesus' genealogy shows us the realness of adoption. Fourthly, also quickly, Jesus' genealogy shows us the justice of God. 
the justice of God. Verse 11, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. If you know your Old Testament history, you should be asking, why is Jeconiah's name in here? It should not be. That is correct. You can look it up later. We're not going to turn there. But in Jeremiah chapter 22, 30, for his sin and unfaithfulness, God curses Jeconiah. And he tells Jeconiah that he will be childless and that no child of his will sit on the throne. And yet here his name is. How can that possibly be true? Because Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. And so even though real, uh, the adoption of Jesus by Joseph is real, Jeconiah still has no biological child to sit on the throne. And here we see once again God's faithfulness. He's not only faithfulness in his grace, he's faithful in his justice. When he makes a promise to Jeconiah that, that, that the curse will be that he will be stricken from the lines, uh, line of the kings, that's true. There has been no king that came through Jeconiah up until this point, and now it's only by adoption. And so Jeconiah still has no son on the throne. Jesus' genealogy shows us the justice of God. But lastly, and maybe most importantly, and this is the part that excites me the most, is Jesus' genealogy shows us the grace of God. Time's not going to permit us to go through all of the names here, but let's just consider who this line is that Jesus came from. The first person we encounter is David, the adulterous, polygamist, murdering, warring king. He sees Bathsheba on top of a, a, a roof bathing, and he desires her. He calls for her. She comes to him. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. He wants to cover it up, so he kills her husband. And this is the first name we encounter in Jesus' genealogy. Then there's Abraham, who lied twice about who his wife was, who didn't believe the promise of God for a son, so he took matters in his own hand, hands and had an adulterous affair with Hagar, his wife's servant, in order to bring about the promises of God. Isaac and Jacob, who are the sons and grandson of Abraham, they are representative here of Israel. It is Jacob who would have his name changed to Israel and from whom the 12 tribes and the Levites would come from. And their story is not one of great obedience. The story of Israel is a story of idolatry and rejection of God and his prophets, rebellion against God and complaint. So much so that God not only cast them out of the land that they lived in and into uh, exile in Assyria and Babylon, but even now, for about 2,000 years, he has set that nation aside in their rebellion to bring you and I into his kingdom. He will not always leave them set aside. But the story of Isaac and Jacob is not one of obedience, God used these men to bring about the Messiah's line. And then there's Tamar. The women who appear here, they're really important. Who's Tamar? Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. She married one of his sons. The son died. What happened then? Well, she was supposed to be allowed to marry another son. 
But those sons were too young, so Judah said, wait, and then I'll give you one of my other sons to marry, a promise that Judah does not keep. So one day, Tamar goes out alongside of the road, dressed up as a prostitute, and she lures him in, and she sleeps with her father-in-law, by whom she has two children, verse 3, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. She is in the line of Jesus, guilty of prostitution, adultery, and incest. Then there's Rahab. When the spies were sent in to spy out Jericho, they stayed with Rahab, who was a prostitute. They spared her when Jericho was destroyed for hiding the spies and helping them to to escape from their attackers. And so when, when Jericho is destroyed by the nation of Israel, her life is preserved. You know what's really interesting is she not only makes the list, we're told that she is, um, where is it? Uh, Verse 5, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. We don't know anything about Rahab after this incident in Jericho, but we do know a lot about her son, who is shown to us in the book of Ruth who is a godly and kind man, who I think it is a fairly safe assumption to to assume had a godly mother. Whatever Rahab was after Jericho was not what she was before Jericho. And here she is. It's not only Rahab who makes the list, but Ruth. We find Ruth in the book of Ruth. Naomi and her husband and two children go over to Moab in a famine. Ruth marries one of the sons, her husband and her sons, Malon and Kilion. They die, and now they're left alone, widowed in Moab, and Naomi is going to return home to Israel. But Ruth, in great faithfulness, stays with her mother-in-law, cares for her mother-in-law, provides for her mother-in-law, and works incredibly hard. And then God graciously allows her to marry Boaz, the son of uh, Rahab. And we're never presented anything in, in Ruth's life other than faithfulness. But you know what she was? She was a Moabite. What's a Moabite? Well, in order to understand what a Moabite was, we have to understand who Lot is. Lot is Abraham's nephew, and Lot lived in Sodom, and God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and told Lot to leave. And as Lot is leaving with his two daughters and his wife, his wife turns around to look at the city, probably in sadness because she wanted to stay there, and God strikes her dead, and now Lot and his two daughters are living in the hills alone. And they think to themselves, there's no man to provide children for us. We got a plan. We're going to get dad drunk. We're going to sleep with dad and we're going to have children. And that's exactly what happens. And the line that came from that incestuous relationship was the Moabites. And Ruth's a Moabite. She is not looked well on by the Israelites. Then there's the wife of Uriah who we've already spoken of. This is Bathsheba, who David took and then had uh, her husband, Uriah, killed. She got pregnant from that adulterous relationship with David, and that child died. But ultimately, she became the mother of Solomon, the great and wise king, who also wasn't so smart 
Because one of the things that was forbidden of kings in the Old Testament was that they amass wealth for themselves. And Solomon is probably factoring for inflation the richest king ever. They were not to amass wives for themselves. And he had hundreds and hundreds of wives and concubines, which are just sex slaves. They were not to amass for themselves horses and chariots from Egypt. And he had thousands and thousands of those as well. So much so was Solomon problematic that under his rule, being only the third king in the line, the nation was divided in two. Israel in the north with Samaria as its capital, Judah in the south, with Jerusalem as its capital, and the kingdom is divided under Solomon. And then there's Mary, who, who unlike the Catholic Church teaches, also needed a Savior. She was not sinless. She was not a perpetual virgin. She's not co-redemptress or redemptrix or whatever you want to call her. She needed a Savior. In fact, the child, Jesus, the Christ, who she bears is the Messiah who will bear her sin. And this is the announcement from the start. Luke, verse 1, 28 says, And he, that is an angel, came to her, that is Mary, and this is Gabriel, and he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. It's hard to see in in uh, English, but O favored one has as its root in Greek grace, charis. Greetings, O one who receives grace, the Lord is with you. What is grace? It is unmerited favor. She didn't deserve to be the mother of Jesus, but God graciously allowed her to be. It's clear in, in her songs in Luke that she saw Jesus as her Savior. What a gracious choice of God to allow this woman to be the mother of the Messiah, God in the flesh, who did contribute biologically to him. We even see grace in three periods of Israel's history. These 14 generations are summaries. They're not complete genealogies, but, but Matthew gives us three summaries. He says, therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. This is the time of the patriarchs. This is the golden era in Israel's history. This is the rise of the nation of Israel. And then from David to the deportation to Babylon is the decline of the nation of Israel. This is the monarchy. There's Saul who is rejected as king. There is David who is not allowed to build the temple because he's warring, this adulterous, murderous, warring king. And then there's Solomon who does build God's temple but also splits the nation in two. And from there, it's just decline. Both kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, had 21 kings. Israel didn't have a single godly king in the bunch. And Judah only had seven of the 21. The vast majority of the kings during this time were wicked. And then, 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon to Christ. And most of the names that are in this list, we know nothing about. 
After about Zerubbabel, we pretty much don't know anything about these men. This is just a time of silence. The prophets aren't speaking. Uh, there's, there's no scripture. God is silent. And whatever is going on in the nation of Israel really probably isn't good because Jesus was not met with a warm welcome. He was crucified and beaten and mocked and killed. And it is this that Jesus comes from. What is the point of all of that? It is this. If God can bring about the Messiah from this line of sinners, whatever is going on in your family is not beyond the redemptive power of Christ. If you're here today and you're like, my family is great. Everything's good. Good for you. Enjoy it while it lasts. I don't say that facetiously. I mean it. Some of you here today are heartbroken over what's going on in your family. Some of you today maybe are so ashamed of what's gone on in your family, you don't even want anybody to know. You want some comforting stories for the hard stuff? Come see me. I'll be happy to share my families with you. I don't have anything to hide. But there's hard stuff going on in my family, my extended family, family members I pray for, beg God for repentance for. No family is beyond the redemptive power of God. If God can bring about our salvation, if he can bring about the Messiah, if he can rescue us from our sin, he, from this family, he can fix any family. And Jesus is not merely a Messiah who wants to forgive you of your sin. He's a Messiah who wants to give you an abundant life. And maybe some of you here today are like, you know, I don't trust Jesus. I haven't trusted Jesus for anything. Maybe your first step today is to trust him as the Messiah. Come from this broken line, this sinful line, this line of sinner after sinner after sinner to be the sinless sacrifice for us. And that by simply trusting in him, we can be forgiven. But maybe some of you are like, well, yeah, I've, I've trusted Jesus for my forgiveness. I believe he is the Messiah. I believe he's the Son of God. I know he died for me and rose again, but maybe you're not trusting him with your obedience. Maybe you think your way is better than his. Maybe your next step is just to say, you know, God's plan doesn't always make sense to me, but I'm going to trust him as the giver of good things. I'm going to trust him. Families, Families are hard. Families are quirky and sinful and tough. And it's all because of sin. But by God's design, the family is the most important and most basic of structures in our society. Certainly, salvation through Jesus is God's greatest grace. Certainly, families are up there as a great grace of God as well. But I would, however, draw our attention for one moment to Mary. A sinner, no doubt, who needed saving. 
But no doubt, particularly as we see her and encounter her in the Gospel of Luke, a godly woman who, who raised some godly children and some not-so-godly children. But when God chose to redeem us by becoming one of us, by taking on flesh, by entering into humanity, he gave his son a mother. What a gift. And clearly, even as we saw on Good Friday, he cherished his mother, seeking out her provision in John while he's hanging on the cross. Mothers are an incredible grace and gift to us all from God. Happy Mother's Day. Father, we thank you for your good gifts to us in family, in mothers, in the church, in your word, but ultimately in Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we know that there are times and seasons of joy in our families and times of stress and sadness and sorrow. And wherever we are today, would you give us hope? Would you give us hope in your goodness? Would you give us hope in your ability to redeem any family and to redeem any sinner? Would you drive us to prayer and great dependence upon you? Lord, lastly, we just want to thank you for the incredible gift of mothers, the incredible gift you have given to us and the ways that they reflect and show us your character. Father, may they be honored today. May they feel honored today. May their families serve them today out of joy, out of delight, out of gratitude for the goodness of the gift you have given us in mothers. And we're thankful for all of your good gifts in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and worship with me once more this morning. Let's just give all of the love that we have to our Lord. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul, rejoice. I would like to wish you all again a happy Mother's Day. I'm going to leave us today with 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 